Welcome back, Tisha. Hi, Jen. How's it going? I mean, it's been a while. Yeah. We haven't released an episode in a long time. A little over two months, but we have been busy recording them. We have been recording them. We haven't been busy showing up on social media. We haven't been busy editing things. Nope. Because we talk a lot about self-care here and I think we both needed to prioritize that this summer and so we did yeah yeah and and we hope that you did too yeah we have great seasons planned and so I hope that you're ready to dive in with us yes and we're back to school Tisha's back in the classroom all of our kids are back in school Are your kids loving it? Mine are actually loving it. This has been the best back to school we've ever had. Oh, beautiful. Yes and no, but we're back. And like extracurriculars are starting. So I think there's been six school days now. So we're still finding our rhythm. Oh yeah, we don't have our rhythm yet. But, you know, we'll get there and we'll get there. Yep, we will. I forgot to bring a snack because Wyatt had to go right from school to tutoring. Okay. And I underestimated, like he rode his bike to school, so he had to ride his bike home to then like get in the car and go. And because I didn't just pick him up with his backpack, we didn't have his backpack or his lunch bag. And I was like, well, I'm sure you have food in your lunch bag. He's like, I don't have it. And I was like, oh. And he's like, we can't stop and get a snack. I'm like, no, we're going to be late. And I found like an old like Rice Krispie square in a wrapper. When? Yeah. <laughs> was it expired? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> he was starting to get irate. And and I was like, dude, we're figuring it out. This is the first time we're going to tutoring right after school. Yeah. Like, we'll get it right. Yeah. He's not very forgiving when it comes to things like that, though. And maybe next time on a tutoring day, we'll not ride her bike or you know we won't just... ride her bike or mommy will just remember to throw a couple snacks in her bag you know whatever it is we'll figure it out on the subject of Wyatt I just I have to share because this is funny and I haven't talked to you in a while I don't know what the I can't remember what the child wanted on Monday but we we're going up to do bedtime and he goes you the most beautifulest beautiful mommy Aww. in the world wait for it when you wear makeup And, and I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's nice. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. He goes, and when you don't wear makeup, you medium beautiful. Medium beautiful. Which, who knows what that means? I go, well, all I know is that your brother would not agree with that. I was like, Logan has always thought I looked way better with no makeup and my glasses on. He, and he started going, well, yeah, who needs makeup? Makeup just covers your face. You don't need to cover your face to be beautiful. And it reminded me of like when they were little and I'd be getting ready to go out and Logan would say, what happened to your face, mommy? And Wyatt would be like, oh, you look so pretty. Kisses? Because he'd want like lipstick kisses on his like Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, wow, like that has stuck. Whatever that was that made them that way, it's still there. It's still their (laughs) preference. Nothing has changed. They are who they are. They are who they are. 
what did you binge this summer? What was the best series you watched this summer? Oh my gosh. Okay. I watched all of Downton Abbey, Oh, which fun. I had never watched before. Oh, that's fun. And I think I started, I watched a movie called Emma on Netflix. Yep. And then I like got really deep into watching like period pieces. Yeah. That's what I did all summer long. So like every movie I watched was period piece. And then I guess because I was watching like, I watched like Emma and I watched Pride and Prejudice and then it's Downton Abbey kept coming up as like a recommendation. And so I finally just started. And so I think there's like, there might be like six seasons or something. I watched it all. Yeah. Yeah. So good. I've seen every episode now. That's basically what I did with my summer. It's so good. Yeah. And it's great. I feel like I partied like a rock star. I feel like I was living my best life this summer and like just seeing people again. And I mean, it was great. Yeah. Not going to lie. It was a very different summer than the last two years in a very like a rock star good way. I, yeah, I feel like I partied like a rock star who can't handle her alcohol. (laughs) <laughs> gets hung over really easily like partied like a rock star meaning I had more than two drinks on more than one occasion <laughs> and occasionally suffered for it <laughs> I'm such a lightweight now <sighs> have you watched She-Hulk probably not we watched the first episode I think as a family it's one really night good. but my youngest was scared you I mean if if, it's a good one actually for for the girls to watch but it's a good one just it's just entertaining in general Logan doesn't know that I watch by myself before I watch with him (laughs) he also doesn't know that I I just finished the fifth season of Cobra Kai while we're only on episode two together this is the benefit of having your separate profiles yeah because I, I watch it on mine and then I make sure that we just watch it wherever we're watching it together. <laughs> yeah. But we're back not to talk about TV. We're back because we've got some amazing episodes coming at you this season. We do. And we have a theme month coming at you, which we'll tell oh, you more about later. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I'm excited about this. An theme expert month. edition. So I'm excited. We've recorded a lot of them already, but we have a lot left to record. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please leave us a review. I had somebody say, I've listened to every episode of your podcast and you always say, please leave us a review. And I wondered to myself, should I leave a review? Yes. Yes. Yes, you should. The answer is yes. If you're thinking, I wonder if I should go do that, please. Do it. The, the best way to support <laughs> us that is of zero cost is to leave a review and it will make our day. So leave a review. The bulk of the reviews that we have were because we bribed people with a giveaway and we don't want our only reviews to be bribed reviews. Yeah. Come on, guys. So Do help it. us out. Today's episode, we are talking about something that I am fascinated with and it was one of a classic gen move where i just listened to this podcast tisha and we need to get somebody from blah 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 and this one was the troubled teen industry which 
if you are a Paris Hilton fan, ironically enough, which I don't count myself as one. That's something she's been very vocal about in the last few years. And so she produced a podcast called Trapped in Treatment that I found very entertaining. So if you like this episode, maybe go check that one out. Maybe this will get Paris to plug our, our show. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But anyway, the troubled teen industry, which we will, if you've not heard of that, you will... You will know about it now. Yeah, exactly. So we hope you enjoy the episode. Leave us a review. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Jen, and welcome back to the Now What Pod. I'm Tisha. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to introduce you to Diana Nowak. She is a writer, tutor, event coordinator, and she is a survivor of the troubled teen industry living in Chicago. And we are here to talk about the troubled teen industry today. So we'll get into that in a bit. Thank you, Diana. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you again for having me. I'm super excited to talk. We were talking before how I was interested in this industry from some other podcasts that I've listened to. And so our amazing guest finder, Tisha, found you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Actually, I think, Diana, I found you through a hashtag that you post to. Is it Breaking Cold Silence? Yeah, there's a few organizations, Breaking Code Silence, Unsilenced, I See You Survivor, Wasp Survivors, WWASP Survivors. Yes. Yeah, I, I was one of the first ones who publicly posted my story. There was like a string of us. And then shortly thereafter was Paris Hilton's documentary, which really like blew it up, which was right. awesome. Yeah. yeah. So not everybody is going to know what the troubled teen industry is. So we might have to explain that a little bit, but I guess at some point you were declared a troubled teen. (laughs) So proudly. (laughs) I mean, I think we all probably technically were. Oh, I for sure was. (laughs) Maybe we should start with when we talk about the troubled teen industry, like what does that mean? And then we can go more into like your personal story. Sure. So troubled teen industry focuses on basically kind of what I had mentioned before, where it's the parents who are kind of like, I don't know what to do, looking for an 800 number to call. How do I fix my kid? Can I talk to a manager? In some situations, other times, it's people who come who are from foster care, who went through the foster care adoption process. And a lot of these institutions receive financial kickback. In my situation, it's kind of like a trafficking. I mean, it is, it's trafficking. People are getting commission on the enrollment of students. So they're looking for anyone they can get for the troubled teen industry. And typically a troubled teen, it could be something from just a normal teenager just acting out. I mean, I just listened to um, Huberman podcast a few weeks ago and he was talking about you know the chemical and puberty that comes out where teenagers start becoming defiant and start questioning their caregiver which is actually an amazing thing like it keeps it helps you be able to go off on your own one day and to have the strength to like build your own life and not have to rely on your caregiver I mean it's a part of evolution to have that so it could be something from like you're kind of acting out a little bit. Maybe you're skipping school a little, which was my case, hanging around with the wrong crowd, also my case. 
it could be something like you do one thing wrong, one thing, and you're sent away. Or it could be you come from very serious trauma and you're not getting the help that you need. So your behavior obviously is going to look different to people because you're processing that trauma as a child, your brain's still forming. So yeah, basically anybody can be a troubled teen now that I think about it. Yeah. Because places will manipulate parents. They will tell you if you don't send your kid here, they're going to die. They're going to overdose. They're going to have a horrible life if they even make it that long. So they really play on parents' fears and insecurities. And they also play on parents feeling like they're not good enough or they're not doing a good job. And when you say these places, they're called schools. The schools, yep. So Paris Hilton, the one that's made popular, was made recognizable by her, was the Provo Val, Provo... Provo Canyon, yeah. Provo Canyon school, but it was called a school, and that's usually what they're called. A boarding school. There's wilderness yeah. program. There's facilities. There's a lot of different, maybe marketed kind of like it's like a rehab type facility for troubled youth. But yeah, Paris really opened the doors to talking about all of the abusive ones. Right. And all of them do have some element of abuse because it's brainwashing. I think what looks really good to parents is that... When you brainwash, and I know there's probably a lot of questions on how do you brainwash somebody, when you brainwash a child and you break them down to rebuild them as someone else, they become very robotic and they look like they're listening to their parents, they're listening to their teachers, they're kind of like, you know, emotionless, they're not overreacting, they're not acting out. They're reformed. Reformed, yes, exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. And so like all these testimonials, if some of them aren't, I, I know a lot of them are fake, but like if some of them aren't, it's because the parents and the child believe that they're saved, but in reality, they don't even know like the type of problems that are like brewing with losing your sense of identity while your brain's still forming. It, it changes the, your life forever because then you have to rediscover yourself. You, you lost all those years in your youth in these, these programs and these schools where you could have been learning who you are, what kind of music you like, what movies you like, things like that. And it just robs you of it. And it almost, it's like regressing backwards. And another thing I like to say, like with childhood trauma is they're so brilliant at this, at doing it. It's like, they're creating more trauma in your teens. Yeah. And they want you to be in constant fight or flight in these programs. So you got to like survive. But then it gets you, when you're getting older, it gets you way far away from dealing with that childhood, the root cause of the trauma. So now I feel like I saw an uptick in 2020 with a lot of survivors coming out with their stories and understanding like what grooming was, what different type of abuse was, because we all had to like quarantine inside and like really sit with ourselves and be quiet mm -hmm. and about that trauma. Right. So into the boarding school trauma, we got to go all the way back now through that trauma and then start focusing on the childhood trauma. So the troubled teen industry from its beginning to now is nothing but a terrible, the worst thing you could do for a youth that's struggling is send them to one of these places because the complex PTSD that comes from this, like I said, there's no major in school to learn in psychology other than maybe surviving a cult that even like touches on the type of bizarre cult tactics and brainwashing and abuse. So that's why mm -hmm. I am so grateful to you for taking interest and bringing these stories out because 
it helps us feel validated. It helps us feel heard. Mm -hmm. We're finding the similarities and then we can finally have some sort of map to get back to ourselves and find out what we need to heal and what we need to, to, to do to move forward, to help other people, to not have to go through this as well. There are so many things that you've said that really interested me. Like, firstly, it does make so much sense that you have these parents who are struggling with their teenager that don't know where to go, that don't know how to get through this, that are seeing problematic behaviors and they go online or they contact these agencies and they're like, oh yeah, it really does sound like she's on the right track. And, you know, like preying on those fears that parents have and making them think, oh, we need to intervene now before something really terrible happens and convince these parents that sending their children away is the solution and letting somebody else fix them, so to speak. Well, that resonates with me at like, and is petrifying because I am a solo parent and I have a 10 and a seven year old. I mean, I just want to send them away to regular old boarding school half the time. So like when they are in that phase where it's freaking, I feel like shit gets real when you have a teenager and when your kids don't listen to you, it's the most infuriating thing ever. And it's like, I don't know what to do. So you can see how, especially now with just like a Google search or whatever, they can, I can fix your kid. It's like, okay, fix my kid. I think a lot, at least I was brought up as a kid to be seen and not heard. So it was like, stop feeling your feelings or stop making a scene. Stop. Like you just don't do that. And I listened for the most part enough, but if you're brought up that way and that now we have these kids that we want them to express their emotions. <laughs> but I'm always like, not all over me. Don't express it all over me. Don't express them all the time. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, there's no, there's no disputing that parenting is fucking hard. So if somebody is going to pop up in your ads or whatever it is, when you're in it, I can easily see how somebody might do that. And from what I've heard and just listening to you talk, the people selling it are very savvy. Oh yeah. I mean, paperwork wise, we have the script, like the script. It's like a telemarketing brain that their, their income is our enrollment. So they know what they're doing. So what happened in your case. So you said that you were kind of skipping school, maybe hanging out with the wrong crowd. How did you end up being in one of these so-called schools? Yeah. So let's see. I was, I would say it's, it's where it started was I was one of the children that had a childhood trauma. And when I was a toddler, my mother was in the passenger seat, my father was driving, and I was in the back seat in my car seat in the middle. And a man who had history of doing this before, laws were just different back then. They, you know, if you were driving drunk, they take your license away for six months and give it back to you. It just, things were different. He blew, going so fast, blew through this red light and T-boned us so hard we flipped multiple times and landed upside down. Oh my God. And what I, what I saw, like, I will never forget. Like, and that's one of the things that changed my life. And 
you know, I'm, I, I like who I am. I like who I am from the beginning of my life and I like who I am now, but that really was devastating to myself, mm -hmm. family, to witness what I did. And I, and it's so, and this is how I know childhood trauma is so real because I remember it vividly, the smells, the sounds, everything. And you were so young. Oh my gosh. And like, we don't often have a lot of memories at that age. Oh, well, I, you know what? Then in a way I'm happy that at least book <laughs> from that is hypervigilance because this helped me remember I'm hypervigilant all the time. It helped me remember the mm -hmm. board perfectly. So in a way, if there's a silver lining, at least I got that from it, but it taught me at a very young age to be extremely hypervigilant. You know, like when you're a child and you're experiencing the world, it's this beautiful thing and everything's new and wondrous and exciting. And I had that ripped away from me very young. And I witnessed my father die. My mother hit the side of the car right above the window and then hit my father's head. So she went into a coma. So the glass was broken. I got pulled out. I was with strangers. I mean, I was hysterical. It just got, it was so bad. Like, it's like the worst and it kept getting worse and like way just, it was, it's almost like a, that I think about it and it's like, did this really happen <laughs> to me? It's just, you know, we got to the hospital and then this man had killed a child, a little girl, he drunk driving, killed a little girl. And by the way, didn't feel anything about it. Didn't even feel guilty about it. The parents of the little girl who passed away showed up at the hospital to get closure on their situation. So it was like a lot of things coming at me really young. And then my mother was in a coma. My entire family was told that she had died already. So there was a lot of really intense things being told to me. I wasn't really getting correct information. I knew my father had what I saw that that was what happened. You know, that was it. And then I got this horrific weight put on me where they were taking me to see my mother to try to like talk to her and like get her out of this coma. And she did come out. She did come out of the coma, but this huge weight put on me that I was responsible for helping my mother come out of this coma. That's a lot. It was way too much, way too early. And so that was difficult. And my mom had the close head injury, couldn't really do anything. She wasn't the same person that she is now and that she was at the beginning of her life. She, you know, as we all know about close head injuries can really change you emotionally, physically, everything for the time that you're, you know, coping and relearning and suffering. And then the man who did it again, didn't feel guilt for what he did was harassing my family, trying to get us to not press charges or testify in court whatever the deal was with that. But yeah, so, you know, I kind of closed the door on that a long time ago. I, I wouldn't say I made peace with it, but I, you know, kind of just decided to take that and move on and push forward. But that was a really devastating and difficult thing. And then shortly after I started experiencing flashbacks in my dreams. So I was reliving the car accident. And, and I think that really is kind of what helped me remember it today so well is because I was reliving it every night mm -hmm. and having flashbacks of my dad of the, the, like the crunching noises and the glass shattering and, you know, 
obviously you can imagine the death of somebody. So unfortunately that created a very serious case of insomnia for me. I just stopped, I just stopped sleeping, like stopped. And the doctors, a child, you just <laughs> stopped sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. I just really didn't sleep anymore. And sometimes days would go by and, you know, my mom took all the necessary measures to bring me to someone to try to figure out what was going on. And I think just child psychology, like back then wasn't as advanced as it is now. I think we're really going in a great direction. And it wasn't back then. And they were like, oh, she'll just grow out of it. She'll grow out of it. And it didn't. <laughs> like, it got really bad. I'm not a doctor, but I know, Tisha, you experienced PTSD. It, it <laughs> sounds like that's what was going on. Very much. Yeah. But I think back then they would never think that a, a child could have PTSD from witnessing a car accident. No. You know, people got PTSD from being in war and that was about it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's how it felt. You know, I went I went into literature and writing in English and it felt like a lot of like things that were PTSD related were a lot talked about, like, you know, wartime and it just finally trickled down and seeing where it affects other people. Because when you're a child, it's so easy to be greatly impacted or traumatized by something. So yeah, the sleep stopped. It stayed that way until fifth grade when... Finally, they were like, again, they weren't as advanced back then. They're just like, throw her on medication, throw her on pills. And that was, you know, not helpful at all because it was sedating and it didn't make me feel happy or alive. I just kind of felt like a husk of myself. So that was my first experience with becoming like what I genuinely believed was considered to be like a troubled, me almost a teen, but like a troubled youth. I, I will say after the car accident, even in my younger years, I was like, you know what? The world wronged me. It took this from me. I didn't deserve this. All the people I was growing up with had families. I felt wronged. Yeah. And yeah. I have very clear memories of being in second grade and being like, I'm wiser than my teachers. They're trying to tell me what to do. And I was like, I've already seen too much. You, you can't scare me. Mm -hmm. So I felt that because I was robbed of so much in my childhood that I was so determined to do it how I wanted to. So I was going to live my life how I wanted to live it and how I felt might give me back some happiness. But obviously going out and skipping school or like hanging out with the wrong people and just kind of like being a troublemaker, obviously, again, that's the troubled youth. And also, I wonder, you're saying that they were medicating you. And so you kind of felt like a shell of yourself and then doing these things that are kind of risky maybe would allow you to feel something yeah yes you are so correct 1000 percent. yes exactly that is so important to say because when you've gone through so much and you felt so much everything after that is not as intense so you got to feel more I, I wanted to feel more I wanted to feel hurt but I wanted to feel a, like elation and like euphoria I was so hungry to learn more than just heartache and grief yeah that's where the troubled teen I guess timeline for me started my mom and I talk about it now and I was like oh I was just really really sassy too so fifth grade obviously like I didn't like the medications they were putting me on just try to sedate me to sleep and so I would just pretend I took them wouldn't take them you know and then eventually I got to ninth grade 
and things were going really well. I was class president, but I still was having those issues where I still wanted to like feel alive and like experience things and hang around with like people. And I don't know if you've heard this when people have childhood trauma, it's like people will observe that they're a wise soul, but that's not the case. It's just that they're like a different, they've experienced different things that have to make them why they should be it's like I didn't mm-hmm. experience childhood so ninth grade my mom kind of was like all right I think I had skipped yes I think I had skipped school the day I, I went to the school and these boarding schools sound really fancy the one I got sent to was academy at Ivy Ridge in upstate New York mm-hmm. and it sounds like nice and the, oh gosh like and it's like I said they're not just targeting one type of income like people who have money they're literally targeting people who have nothing. That's how hungry they are for your money. They don't yeah. care. They they're they were convinced like they were having people convince them to remortgage their homes, to spend their entire college tuition fund on the schools, take out loans, which is ridiculous because the school company owns the loan company too. And a lot of families are still financially devastated because mm-hmm. of being old that you your child needs this or they'll die and your family's broken this is gonna fix it so academy and ivy ridge very expensive and not with the money i'll tell you that <laughs> None of these. and i know today they've like tripled in price i've seen some of the prices in some of the schools that are open now like when i was there it was an ivy league tuition type situation so i don't even what oh, i have seen now yeah now is just if you can't devastate your family one way, they can do it to you that way. So, so how did your mom find them or did they find her? My mom was awesome. She kept everything, all the paperwork, everything. She gave it to me a few years back and she was looking at different schools. Paris Hilton school was on that list. There was another school, CDU, that was on the list, a few other schools. And she was looking for help. She didn't know how to help you. And she was looking for help. Yep. So she gave me everything, which is amazing. Like she had anything printed out. She had her notes on things, phone calls she had. She took notes. My mom's note taker as well. Took a lot of notes. So I could see the lies they were feeding her. And they, they did a really, really good job. And, you know, couple that with the head injury. And I can't imagine that it was, it wasn't easy to say for her, but also it was really easy for those people to sell it to her. And so. convince her that this was what was best and that she was making the best choice for you. I really don't think that, you know, I think that parents who are making the choice to send their children away are, they think they're doing it from like a place of love, that they really want what's best for their children and that they're really going to help their children and get them on the right path so to speak. Were there discussions? Did you have any idea that your mom was looking into this at all? Yeah, she like would say it. Like, I'm going to send you away. And I, I'm a really good do it. Like, I don't care. At that point in my life, I was like, oh, more, you know, like more fun, freedom. The first time I wanted out of my mom's house and like to be in the world was fifth grade. And I did. I went off and I lived with friends, family friends. So I was ready to get out there. So when I heard that, I was like, sure, whatever. But I didn't know, obviously, what exactly was coming for me. Well, you think of like boarding school and it's like, okay, whatever. You're not in charge of me anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was awesome. And I was always up for a new experience. It was only like when I got there that I saw the extent of 
I, I mean, I knew immediately within an hour that this was going to be really bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you mind telling us a bit about your experience? Yeah. So there's a few things that come to mind when I think of the school because people can sit here and say like, oh, these schools are abusive and they're brainwashing. Well, here's some good examples that really like quantify that and kind of paint a better picture. You could say a few things that I experienced there were sexual abuse. When I came out with that breaking code silence story, I didn't even know I had sexual abuse until later. Like that's how much like I always felt like I was kind of advanced in a lot of things, you know, with like psychology, but it's a lot of learning. I didn't know what grooming was back then. I didn't know what like, a lot was. So I'm, you know, I'm still open to learning. I'm still learning. I'm still growing and healing. But some of the really big things were this one woman specifically. From the time I got there, my first day, multiple times, there was one instance she took me by my hair and the back of my shirt and dragged me into a bathroom and didn't like take my clothes off. Like she ripped my clothes, like ripped them. I couldn't wear them again. She ripped them completely naked, making comments about my body. I was a young teenager. I was 15, I believe, when I got there, making comments on my body, body shaming me. In that instance, I should have actually gone to the emergency room and she wouldn't let them take me to the emergency room. She left me naked all night in a bathroom, vomiting. Very bizarre punishments to break you down and make you think nobody loves you, no one's gonna come for you. And you're manipulative and you're not worth saving. So she was throughout my entire stay at that school, a huge figure. And a lot of stories, like I said, came out about her. So that was validating for me to hear it happening to other students as well, though my heart goes out to them because like I said, I feel like from the beginning of my life, I have this like ability to kind of like fight through. Whereas a lot of people, it's a little bit harder. And so I'm very sensitive to them and I'm always here for them. But another situation, I had a grown man. So this was two times was said to me, I had a grown man who he's he's the one that started these schools. And then a grown woman looked me in my face. And I have to almost laugh when I say this, because I remember laughing back then because it was so stupid, but it is devastating for a child to hear. And I helped raise a child with my boyfriend at the time. And so I've been in those roles of like parenting. So if I ever heard someone say this to my child or a child I'm taking care of, I would lose it. But look in my face, get in my face and yell at me. And there are two things that they said. The first one was, you're wasting your life. If your father were here, he'd be ashamed of you. If I were your father, I would hate who you are, hate who you've become. And if you had taken his place in the car accident, he would be happier because he wasn't wasting his life, but you're wasting yours. The second one, the woman said to me, and this is in front of a room of maybe 30 to 50 students, depending on the day. She said to me, your mother would have been a lot happier if you had died in that car accident and not your father. To my face. Wow. And this wasn't even like the tip of the iceberg of the stuff they said to kids. I saw them do this. They made kids reenact rapes, molestations from childhood. They made me relive the entire car accident. And then after, and then I was like, I don't want to talk about this. And they're like, no, you're going to tell it. And then they were like, and the most hilarious part is these people are so stupid is they wrote everything down. There's blogs of everything. I have everything. And they literally wrote that I'm playing a victim and I need to be accountable for my father's death. Something that I did in infancy 
So butterfly effect type situation was the reason my dad died and I have to be accountable for it and own it. And is this like under the guise of like, they're saying this is therapy. Like if you reenact this or relive this, that this is your therapy. Okay. That's, it's like such a sick thing because it's like, there is truth to the form of psychology, like healing your inner child. But it can also be re-traumatizing. Yes, exactly. So especially if you're being forced to do this in an environment that you don't feel safe and it's not your choice to tell this story. And then the response is like, well, you know, it's your fault that this accident happened. 100%. What? Yep. Well, and that's what sets us up for getting in abusive relationships later. I have done a lot of research and writing on this for almost a decade now and interviewing, I, I got staff interviews. That's how dumb, I'm sorry how dumb these people are, but there is truth to the healing the inner child. There's a lot of forms of psychology that work on like healing and like mm -hmm. other figure or father figure or some type of like caregiver to your wounded inner child. There's a lot to that. that. And that's true. Like I genuinely believe in that type of therapy. They just took it and twisted it in a really right. sick way. Make it more like effective immediately, I guess, like to break you down. Because when you look emotionless and I've seen this, like kids who come from that school, I remember being in that school and them just looking like dead, like behind the eyes, like just being like not there anymore. So yeah, they, they took a really legitimate type of, of useful therapy and twisted it to make it work for them so mm -hmm. they could money, you know, quicker. I think I had mentioned to you, I fought being at this school. I would just go off on them. I'd be like, this is brainwashing. This is a cult. I'm, I'm being lied to. This is just, people are just here for money and just yelling, very defiant. But to a child who hasn't had like the experience that I had growing up where I had to fight, you know, to live, they're very vulnerable and they're abandonment issues i mean imagine being just dropped off at a school and then you're gone and you're on your own if you have these abandonment issues growing up it's playing on those so oh, yeah. and if you didn't have them you might now when you went to, did your mom bring you to school or were you like picked up by one of these transport companies that i am so lucky i have done research on these transport companies. I luckily did not have that, but those transport stories, they make me like almost sick when I hear them because they're so horrific. Like they like rip kids out of their beds and, and yeah. yeah. And the kid doesn't know, like, are they being kidnapped? Are they going to get killed? Or, you know? And so they're sometimes for hours in the back of a van, like, like handcuffed thinking this is it. I'm going to die. So that is a great way to start the breaking down process is to immediately, they, they, they knew what they were doing. Uh, luckily I didn't have that. My mom and my family friends dropped me off. I mean, I guess in your case, it makes more sense. Cause you were kind of like, yeah, whatever I'll go. But so you lived there about 22 months. What was it like there? I know horrible things happened, but like, did you share a room with other people? Where did you take your meals? Like, I'm just interested in kind of the day to day. Stuff. Yeah, you know, so they were really good at messing with my sleep, made my sleep way worse. So throughout the night, they would have alarms going off and they'd be screaming, get out of your bunks, get out of your bunks. And you'd run, you'd, you know, wake up out of your sleep and you're scared. And then you have to run out into the hallway, you know, if something happens or if an alarm goes off and it's like, they're like, just kidding, go back to bed. So it was, my sleep was way worse at that time because it taught us that we always have to be in fight or flight, even in sleep. So, you know, you get mm -hmm. woken up in the morning and you're already on the edge of your seat. 
you know, you're abandoned, you're miserable. And then the day kind of consists of meals. We were forced to eat. They used food as punishment for us. So in examples for me, if I was being too defiant, I was deprived food, then they'd use food also as a reward. So it really, you know, if someone didn't come in there with an eating disorder, they left with one because they would use food to shame you, reward you and punish you. If you were eating, you know, cause you only had like a certain amount of time to eat all your meals. That's not healthy. And then, you know, you'd vomit and then you'd get thrown in intervention or isolation for the rest of the day. And you have to stare at a wall. It happened to me multiple times. I had to sit in, in a small room and I'm telling you like very small room, all walls, no window and stare at a wall for hours or write essays on why I deserve to be here and why I'm the one who killed my father. I have a lot of those they made me write. Why I destroyed my family, why I don't deserve to live, like all this weird stuff. So you got punished for anything and everything. It was like they like enjoyed the embarrassment of us. You kind of go through the day and I could talk to anybody. Nobody could speak. Could speak at all? Nope. You couldn't talk unless you were literally like granted permission. So you couldn't speak to each other. So it was like just silence all the time. Even to this day, like when things are too quiet, I'm waiting for something to happen. Yeah. A lot of us, I think have issues with exercise because they used exercise as punishment. So one day we'd either be like doing these crazy high intensity interval training type drills or we'd be walking in a box, like just walking and pivoting around a box for like an hour straight. It's it's just like bizarre, like bizarro world stuff. And Did you do like math, geography, like was there, <laughs> was there any like learning? Yeah. Curriculum, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe because I'm a teacher, I'm interested. Like <laughs> I mean, I, I work with kids too. And like, I, to this, I'm like, I don't know how you did it, but there were classes more with tutors, some were teachers, and then they're also like computers, but yeah, there was, there was school, but school is like a privilege. So that was hard for me because I really love learning and I love education, but I was not following the rules and being very defiant and openly defiant. So I got punished a lot. So it was almost like their form of manipulating me to like try to be more compliant was that I could go to school and like learn more. So it was pretty sick. Another big part of this is what they did with medication. So this was pretty triggering for me because of my experience growing up. They invented a fake disorder. I mean, it actually might be a thing, but they just used it on everybody called oppositional defiance disorder. So being oppositionally defiant. And oh, I got diagnosed with that, of course. So that was their excuse to medicate us. And I know in Paris's documentary, she did a really good job of kind of explaining what it was like being given the pills every day. You know, you think like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, mm-hmm. open, look up your tongue, stuff like that. And we were all trying to find ways to get out and get help like to the outside world because we were so far away. We were in the middle of nowhere. So some girls would like cheek their pills or like try to hide them under their tongue. And then they try to overdose to get to a hospital to get help. So it was like a line of sedated teenagers and it was awful, actually awful. So that's a huge thing that I think is really important to bring up is because what they did to me, I want them to be held accountable I don't ever want a child to go through what happened to me. I was fighting this a lot and 
they put me on a very sedating medication. They put me on many medications and I didn't know the dosage. I didn't know anything. I didn't want to take it. And this is probably the most traumatizing thing that happened to me in this school was one day I was like, I'm not taking this. This is makes me feel bad. I'm not going to take it. I want to try to like get to a hospital. So I was like thinking in my head, like, Oh, if I go off my meds, they'll take me to a hospital, you know, or something. Cause they would threaten us all the time. Like, Oh, if you don't take these pills, we'll like sh shoot it in you with a syringe or we'll send you to this really bad school in Jamaica where they hit the kids. And so they, they're always threatening us. But I finally like stood up to them and I was like, I'm not taking these. And what happened to me, this is probably the one of the biggest things that comes back when I sleep in night terrors. I was, and this was the woman who did my intake who I had mentioned was sexually abusive. I got knocked out of my chair onto the ground and I have all the paperwork from the staff members who did this because they're called statement of facts. So they would write them detailing what happened. They thought it was like for liability wise, but now it's like coming back and haunting them because they wrote these. I got knocked out of my chair and I was 16. I was on the floor face up and a woman well over hundred pounds heavier than me sitting on me, like taking her feet up. So she was heavier. So she was just like sitting on me, holding my nose and my mouth shut and suffocating me. So literally suffocating me. And then they would hold it there. I would start to black out like literally black out. And then they take their hands away and I was like, <gasps> and then they would shove the pills in my mouth and I spit the pills out. And then they were digging into my mouth to try to like hurt my mouth into my cheeks to get me to open my mouth. So blood was coming out of my mouth. I don't know. And it's, it's, it's crazy. And I feel bad for all the children who had to watch this. Yeah. Everybody was sobbing because nobody could do anything because if they tried to help me, then they were going to get punished. Yeah. So blood coming out of my mouth, I was blacking out. I was in and out of consciousness, fighting, screaming, screaming for help. Like somebody help me, please. In the reports that I have, it is noted that I was screaming how I could not get air and I could not breathe. There is no doubt in my mind that I would have died that day if I had fought like maybe 10 minutes longer because I was that close to like the blacking out and the unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. So I took the, finally swallowed the pills and they just left me there screaming and hyperventilating and like wailing. Like I couldn't breathe. I don't, I don't get panic attacks, but I do know a lot of people that do. And so I kind of feel like it's something like that. I couldn't breathe for over yeah. an hour and yeah. they just left me there lying on the ground. And that situation really sums that school up where where they were with physical abuse emotional abuse psychological yeah. abuse yeah i took those pills but i'm pretty sure if i didn't i would have died they don't even care how many people are watching they probably almost want them to watch so that they know what'll happen if they don't do exactly. it exactly exactly and they can't say anything because it's going to happen to them right What's even sicker, if you're ready for this, is they wanted the students to believe if they were helping them, that they would be rewarded. They called girls over to hold my legs down and my arms down because I was blacking out and I was flailing, like I couldn't breathe. So they called students over to hold my legs down, hold my arms down, and they were just 
crying hysterically because they didn't want to do it, but they were forced to do it because staff loved seeing us, you know, in that kind of state. Like they loved pitting us against each other. That was like their thing. This is all horrifying. So you were in there for 22 months. Did you ever, um, did you get to talk to your mother while you were there? Like they obviously don't let parents come visit. No, I have, a, a, like I said, my mom kept everything. Right. She dropped me off and I have all these emails and like things from her saying like, I dropped my daughter off over a week ago. Why is nobody calling me back? Why okay. is nobody telling me what's going on? Right. Why have my daughter? So obviously the promises they made her in the beginning, they weren't following through. I got to write letters every Sunday, but if I was being defiant, which I was pretty much always doing, then I lost privilege. So then they would just tell your mom she couldn't write her letter because she's being defiant. So they were really working this to their advantage. Yeah. And I guess they probably read what you wrote. Oh, yes. That's my favorite. <laughs> I have all my letters I sent home. The copies, the, not copies, I'm sorry, the actual like letters I sent home where they were blacking stuff out that I said in the letters, cutting it out, highlighting things that looked like I, you know, and then they would use that as more evidence like, oh, this is a lie. It, it wasn't. It was all what was going on. They just were using that, like, oh, your daughter's just embellishing or lying. And, right. But no. Did she try to get you out before those 22 months? Like, did she make an effort? Like, did she get to a point where she was like, I don't know. That's a long time. It's a really long time. I mean, I know she was going through her own stuff, too, but, like, that's... Well if they're getting paid to keep you there, they're going to try and keep you there as long as they can. I get that. I get that. But I just, and I'm sure that they have strategies. Like I was reading about the troubled teen industry. And one of the things I was reading was like that sometimes they would tell parents it's best for you to limit your contact for the first six months or something so that we can rehabilitate them, so to speak, so that they would almost twist it so that the parents thought they were doing the right thing. There were things that happened where I have, you know, evidence of my mother being like, this isn't right. I remember one email she wrote, she's like, you need to apologize to my daughter for what you did, but they didn't. One of the incidents was I, before I went to the school, I was told that I needed to get a pelvic exam and I wasn't sexually active. And my mother said, no. I I think there was like some back and forth about it because they were trying to like sell it on like a health thing and, you know, manipulating me and my mom to like need it. And then my mom was like, no, like you can't do that. So the day of the exam came and they made me do it. So I was told that I would be punished. Like I would like- Which is sexual abuse. Like you are not consenting to this exam. I was not, no, I wasn't. And I had an exam performed on me and the doctor that what they would do is they, they'd bring like doctors in the town, like into the school and just like have them in a room and like they bring students in and out. And I even remember the, it was a woman. She was like, this is messed up. <laughs> like she even said it. And she's like, I can't continue with this because she's crying and it's clearly very painful for her. So she actually was the one that stopped it. I wish she had done something and said something, you know, and that's kind of like how I feel about all these staff members is they still have the- Well, you wonder, they don't have an obligation to report this? Like right into this facility as a doctor and they're like, we need you to perform a pelvic exam against somebody's will. 
right? Why wasn't anyone working at Walgreens, like filling prescriptions and be like, that's weird. Why are 80 students on Seroquel? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know how they were Seroquel's like- Seroquel's getting a kickback too. And, and that's how I feel about the staff members to this day is, yeah, I would love to get a phone call. I would, honestly, I would love to get a phone call from this woman or any of these staff members who abused me. And I would listen quietly. I would love to hear what they have to say after all, like so many, almost 20 years. But my answer to them is, okay, so you make the choice every single day of your life to wake up and not pick up that phone and make a report or with the authorities or, or say something every day that you wake up and you don't make a conscious decision to report this, what you know, or to be a better person. Are you volunteering with Planned Parenthood? Are you working with troubled, troubled youth? Are you working with like families in crisis? Like, are you working with your local homeless shelter? Like, what are you doing to make up for what you did to us? And none of them are doing it. So I like to hear you apologize, but I, I, don't, I don't forgive any of them. No, because they're not doing anything different. They're, they're not helping make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, all these people in this town who maybe didn't know exactly what was going on, but there were like very clear warning signs. There's really no excuse for why nobody picked up the phone and called 911. So I looked up the school there. There's a Wikipedia page for your school. And it <laughs> says that when you're a lower level, you're not allowed to look outside. Yes. Is that true? Yes. We weren't allowed to look anywhere we had to always look straight ahead at the person's head in front of us. So we walked like in line structure, pivoted around like doors, walls. Oh, here's a great one. We weren't allowed to look outside. And also when males, male staff members, or cause there was a boy side, if they walked by, we had to put our heads down and say, I'm sorry, or excuse me. So we were shamed constantly. So whenever a man came around, we had to put our heads down. And apologize for just existing. Yeah. Or pardon me, excuse me. I was there for 22 months. So you can imagine how many times the rules changed. Still kept the similar format to all the other like WWASP, Worldwide Organization of Seminars and Program Schools. Right. How did you finally get out? Did you like graduate or like... (laughs) Yeah. So did you did you get to the top level and like they're like, oh, you're you're healed? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like like I said, like throughout my life, anytime my life gets like kind of hard or like I feel overwhelmed, I'm like, it's never gonna be that bad again. <laughs> like, it's so fucked up. <laughs> and I've told you about my life. Like that was the worst. No, I for this for Academy and Ivy Ridge, I did not move up in the levels because for I dug my heels in. I was the only student to choose, like, so these brainwashing seminars they make us do, I chose out every time. Don't want to do this. This is brainwashing. This is abuse. I'm not doing it. I guess I didn't, like, know at the time, like, how advanced that was, like, I guess, like, because now looking back, people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you, you know, you stood up for these people. But back then, I didn't see it as that at all. Like, I just, I guess, was a positional client. <laughs> like, uh, so you never leveled up ever? Because you earn points to like gain yeah. privileges such as looking out a window. Yeah. So I think it was like negative like a million points like all the time. So my most of my days were spent like staring at a wall in addition to school, like staring at a wall or writing essays or doing these like exercise punishments. At Ivy Ridge, I moved up briefly because 
at the next level up, you got a candy bar once a week. <laughs> so that's like the, like food is like a problem for us. Like it's really difficult for us because food's like comforting and like also like restricting. It's just a lot of issues around food, but I would move up sometimes for like the privileges, but I was still like very openly against it. So that could only get you so far. So when I finally left, cause my mom was spending so much money and like there was no results. <laughs> like literally, I think I was the one person who was like zero results. So she was like, oh my gosh, she just took me home and like hoped like I'd grown up a little. And then I got okay. back to, to public school where I was way worse than I was ever. Like way, way worse. Really like rule breaking, like, you know, kind of is earlier in my life, but like even more so. I just didn't really maybe same mentality as after my dad died is like, I was like, I'll, whatever, I'm going to live my life. How I want to live it. This bad stuff keeps happening to me. So I'm just going to do what I want. And then I got sent back to another boarding school, but the second one was kind of like to, my experience at that school was like, I, and I have, oh my gosh, amazing friends there. It was almost like college dorms because I was almost 18. So I was just a paycheck to them basically. So I kind of like did what I wanted. And still like, even though like I moved up in the levels, I was 18 so I could do what I wanted. So it was like, I kind of just like lived and hung out there. I graduated early actually. I moved up with the school. I really pushed myself to school to kind of like pick up like all that I had sadly like fallen back on, picked up on it, graduated early. And I worked at a diner, like gas station, diner, store, restaurant in town and then had some great roommates but it wasn't like the same structure and still even though like I graduated from that boarding school it was like a joke in the facility that I was like graduating and I didn't still didn't follow the rules like I broke the rules the whole time I was there I, I just didn't believe in the system or the brainwashing it was another one of those corrective boarding school kind of situations yeah but different because they're all over the country and you know some one was in the Samoan Islands one was in Jamaica one was in Mexico you know so they were pretty much all over the world and then governments in other countries were catching on to it this is abuse and they would get shut down there'd be riots and then they'd all get sent to the ones in the United States so it's really interesting all the ones so yeah they were like in the same class but this one was in the Midwest in Iowa and it was like nothing compared to, to Ivy Ridge, but I don't want to invalidate anybody's experience in Iowa because like I said, I was almost 18, so they didn't really care what I did, <laughs> but right. to others younger, I can imagine how difficult it was for them having like adhered to rules and the brainwashing seminars and all that. Right. Oh, there's a lot. I know. I'm sorry. There's so much. <laughs> no, the school in Iowa, was it also like one of those WWASP accredited schools? Yeah, that one's, that one's a tough one because, you know, my friend group there, which was awesome. You could have friends, you know, we- You were allowed to talk there. We, yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. different. It was different when you, when you- especially when I got older to 18, they kind of just were like, do what you want. But the lower levels didn't so much. But sadly, those like brainwashing seminars were still a thing. And then the, the director of the program, and again, this is like a newer awakening I've had uh, in the last few years. I didn't understand this years ago. And now I do. I didn't know what grooming meant. I didn't really know what narcissists 
were, I didn't know what like a lot of this stuff was, but the program director that I you know, knew and I, I babysat his kids. I hung out with his wife, like my friend group and I would like work for him, like, and just hang out with them. He, I'm not going to say accused because it's what happened. There weren't allegations. Like he, he was caught abusing girls. Like there were people who came forward in court. So, and I've seen the evidence presented. So I know the truth. I know that Mm -hmm. it did happen now, but. Was this Midwest Academy? Midwest Academy. Yep. So yeah, I'm glad now that I know. I just didn't really understand what any of those words meant up until maybe like a few years ago. But you weren't raised to be able to properly distinguish anything. Do you know, like that whole idea of being like wise beyond your years, but it was just by nature of the trauma you experienced, right? So I, but I think that means that adults, whether you were in one of these schools or not, you're not raised and educated in the same way. Yeah. These schools, if you look this up, all attracted predators, many predators, because they knew what they could do. And this is, again, why I don't forgive them is because we were young. Our brains were still forming. We were still trying to understand the world and make sense of our existence. These people were in their 40s, older. At that point, you know what you're doing. You, and some of them still to this day, like, aren't apologizing. They're like, oh no, they, these were bad kids and they deserved it. Like, it's ridiculous. Every school has its own story. I have a lot of friends who did go to other schools. A lot of times that these kids get sent away. And I think Paris had even kind of touched on this. And I, one time years ago on the Kardashians, one of Courtney Kardashian's assistants was talking about it and she got sent to one because her dad was a politician. So a lot of times it's like people want to like look good to the town or some like office and their kids running around sneaking out of the house at night. Well, they don't want to look bad. Like they send this- them away to school. So they'll just pay all this money, have a kid kidnapped and they're gone. And now they mm-hmm. can focus on their political career. So that happened to my friend and she got sent to a school in Montana and then got sent to my school in Iowa where I met her. So there's, as you can see, there's like a lot of different stories, but when you get into the schools, the patterns are the same of abuse and trauma and so forth. What was really interesting to me when I was listening to Trapped in Treatment that, you know, I was aware of places like that, but I thought it was just like where wealthy people sent their kids, mm-hmm. which yes, is part of it. But then also you have all these, like they're state sponsored or whatever. It's probably not the right terminology, but like spots in these schools, like when you have kids, I think you touched on it in foster care or, you know, that are in the system. Oh yeah. I mean, I could email you the name of politicians who support these schools because it's, you know, they're trying to buddy up with, I won't say what party, but you know, (laughs) there's money, there's money behind in politics in the U S like there is. There was, and also they were very Mormon. So my school, both of them are Mormon owned. And is it true that in the States, they kind of started in Utah? Utah. Yep. They all came from Utah. So I had a really crazy experience of, and like I said, I always think it's hilarious. I don't know why they trusted me. They knew I was a writer. Like they knew like, cause I was, I was, I was writing and like school newspaper, all that stuff for a long time. And already, and I don't know why they thought this was a good idea. They brought me to the owners, like the head, head, head guy who owned all of these schools. Like 
They brought me to his, and I call it like a compound, an estate. He basically owned his own valley in Utah. What I saw is like wealth beyond anything you've ever heard. Like think of like, what's that movie from, or what's that from Scarface? You know, the, the house he lived in? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. But like times a thousand. So like I, what I saw on that estate was the most wealth I had ever seen on any Real Housewives of Anything show. So that's, and I remember when I finally told my, like when I told my mom that when I saw her next, it was in California. And I remember like her face, like she was like, so that's where all our money went. Was right straight up to the, he was Mormon to the owner, basically right into his pocket. So he had, he had a, a lot of money to bring. I'll tell you that. Was there any like religious teachings that were happening in the school? If you got to a higher level, you could go with them to like church and stuff like that. It was a very, so they were homophobic. They transphobic. They would bully you on the basis of your skin color, which, oh, that, oh my gosh. My, I had a friend at Ivy Ridge and she was just abused flat out and like I said I did the research I have the paperwork you know everything that was written from that her stay there where she was literally bullied because of her color like her skin color it it mean they were like terrible so if you're you know based on your skin your gender obviously they like preferred males over females if you were like any like based on your sexuality they were terrible to you they would bully you but the crazy thing is like these people who are bullying us for our sexuality were also the same staff members who were having girls taken to their rooms in the middle of the night. Right. It was sick. They would have other students get girls for them to bring back to this, like their rooms at night. And these, these women were the same people who were bullying other students, you know, the students for their sexuality and what they identified as but they were the ones who were doing these things to children at night behind closed doors. So it's just, like I said, I don't know, with religion, with all that stuff and all that nonsense, but they, Mm -hmm. there were elements of it for sure. Right. So, so uh, one of the things we like to talk about on the show, as you know, it's called the now what pod, because we want to know like, now what you go to this school, you've had all of this trauma they send you out into the world mm-hmm. and now what I mean how yeah. do you begin to process that heal from that all of it yes great question I love that your podcast does this like so much so I can say from my experience that I left the school. So in full, I was at these schools for about three and a half years. So it's three and a half years gone. And I got out and a few months later, went straight to college. So that was fun. In a way, I think for a lot of people that'd be really hard and overwhelming. I felt that it worked for me because it was college. I was accepted to, oh my gosh, so many great schools. And obviously, like I said, Academy Ivy Ridge looks really good on a transcript because it looks, sounds fancy and you get good grades at these schools. So I got into a number of colleges. The one I picked was in Michigan and it worked for me because everybody coming freshman year doesn't, they don't know each other. 
So you have to make new friends. And I just, it was like, I got out of the school, went to college and I just, I went right back to being who I was when I was a kid. Just what I believed in, needed to get it done, just like survival mode. So I knew I had to make new friends. I knew I had to like go to school and get good grades to get the career I wanted. So it was like, I had to stuff it down and pretend it never happened. So yeah, that was hard. That was hard for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I really had to stuff it down when people would ask me like, oh, where'd you go to school? I'd be like boarding school. And then we wouldn't really talk about it because, you know, you're trying to make new friends in college. I lucked out. I found a really amazing group of friends in college. I enjoyed my time there. It was a way for me to start over and start fresh. And, but for a lot of people, that's not the case because they leave with these, you know, debilitating anxiety disorders or depression or serious Mm -hmm. trauma and they're, they're 18 now and you know what now so a lot of us have really struggled finding ourselves I think because it's so buried down there there's just there's just so much to dig up when you look yeah and you touched upon this idea as a teenager you know you're supposed to be kind of questioning and figuring out who you are and what kind of music you like and like really exploring your identity and you spent three and a half years in a place where you weren't allowed to have one Yeah, where they were trying to, like, strip you of any identity. Yeah, and I also lucked out. The group of friends I grew up with welcomed me back every single time I got back. So I I really thank them a lot for taking me Mm -hmm. back, not understanding why I disappeared for 22 months, but bringing me back into their lives as a friend. And, oh, gosh, it's so hard because you know, when you leave for 22 months, people grow without you. We still have a like ongoing joke. I remember when I got out of New York, the school in New York, and I heard this song and I was like, oh my gosh, I just heard the coolest new song. And she like looked at me and she was like, that song came out like a year ago. And I was like, oh, so like to this day, there are still like gaps in those years where I don't even know what happened. Like, I'm still like, oh, this cool new movie I found out about, but it was you know, or history, like sometimes people tell me something and, you know, like I love history and literature and I'd be like, what year did that happen? And then, you know, 2004, I'm like, oh, no, that makes sense. I was in boarding school. So it's kind of like a a joke now, but I like to think I caught up and yeah, I mean, in a positive way, I really did do the work and it's doable. It's really hard for these students, survivors, because there, like I said, there really is no like specific type of like therapy for us. It's so complex and has so many layers. And, you know, like for me, I have really bad insomnia that was exacerbated by these schools, eating disorders. A lot of kids came out with really, really devastating image of themselves because we weren't allowed to look in mirrors the whole time. So I went in looking one way, came out 22 months and I didn't even understand like, who I was anymore. I, I, it's like, I couldn't even recognize my face in the mirror. So it was a lot of like image issues, but I really, really put the work in. I kind of like channeled into that, like little me that I was, you know, after my dad died where I really had to fight to like live life. And maybe that's kind of like some of that inner child healing I was mentioning. That's why I believe in it so much is because I did work on her a lot. I really wanted her to feel safe and loved and like not abandoned. And that's not to say I don't have like, you know, stuff this to now that I'm still kind of coping with like sleep, for example, but I really pushed through and I used these experiences to connect with others. 
so like I said, like now, I think at the beginning, I was saying like, oh, nothing offends me. Like I can talk to anybody. And I use that to heal, but also help heal others. I don't know yet if this is healthy or unhealthy, but it's working for me now. But I feel like the way that I have healed the most is by trying to help others heal and like understand what happened to them. Because as I say, the only way out is through and it has been really hard on me. I have gone through a lot and I've seen my friends suffer even more. And so I just try to be there for them and help talk them through it and and validate, validate, validate. Because what these schools did was taught us to gaslight ourselves. Simple, plain simple, to gaslight ourselves. We're being dramatic. We're being crazy. Our emotions are, you know, not justified or it's our fault. Our dads died. It's our fault that, you know, someone was raped or somebody was molested, anything. It's our fault. So how do you, as an adult, make sense of that? So I have luckily when they were saying these things to me, like saying, you know, like my dad would be happy if I had died and not him. Like, I, I just try to like laugh at it. Like, I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That is not real. I think that once you kind of like push, you know, start diving in, cause it's hard. I mean, who, everybody's afraid of their pain. I, I mean, we don't want to feel pain. I mean, even in like our culture, everything is like numbing pain. Pain is bad. You don't want to feel pain. What medication can you take? What can you do to avoid thinking about it, to avoid, you know, whether it's like drinking or, you know, anything else out there that's going to avoid you feeling your pain and suffering Mm -hmm. until you like really face that. And I'm not going to lie. I'm afraid of pain, but I do know that unless I like look at it and deal with it, it's not going to go away. I will say some of the things that I heard in these seminars that were said to other people don't even come close to that. Like telling girls they deserve to be raped or what were they wearing that made made it easy for them or, you know, things like that. It's, it's just terrible. It's cruel. It's disgusting. It's inhumane. It's barbaric. The fact that they're training other staff members to say these things. Well, and just even the fact that, that these places still exist too, is really horrifying. It's good to talk about these things. It's it's good because the more awareness, the more we can all band together and fight. Because I think the type of personal suffering that comes out of these schools is we're all feeling isolated, abandoned. We don't want to open up. We we don't want to open up to anybody because every time we open up, someone attacks us or says something really hurtful, like like that. Or you get sent away again, or you know, again, or something bad will happen to them. So we're all like really just stuffed down our trauma. And, but now awareness is coming out, you know, all these documentaries, all these projects, I'm working on a few, I'm a film and then a photography project that's coming out like an art installation later this year. So the more awareness, the more we can all come together and like help each other to make sense of this and heal, but know that there's no excuse for what happened to us. There's, there's not, there's no excuse to send your kids to one of these places. If you have the evidence of what it does. Right. But yeah, Jen, you sound like such a great mom. I was like, we, I was like, oh my gosh, I wish you were my mom. <laughs> yeah, I love my mom too, but like, I don't know. I don't know if my kids would agree, but <laughs> I'm so happy to hear like you would stand up for your kid because that's oh, the yeah. thing. These parents aren't standing up for us. 
we were on our own. We didn't have anybody in our corner. We had no advocate, none, no advocate. But they, they were, but they were sold a solution where that didn't even give them the opportunity to, or to even know that you need, like, you know what I mean? Like just coming at it from a parent's point of view, which I feel like we kind of did at the beginning, I would imagine, like, I'm sure there were, there are plenty of situations like the politician's kid that they just wanted them out of the picture so they could do whatever. But I would venture a guess that that was not the majority of the kids that were there, you know? And in my opinion, they were capitalizing on the fact that parenthood is fucking hard yeah and teenagers are hard and yeah yes they're supposed to be but you know you get to your wits end sometimes yeah like, i mean i will never send my children to a place like that but thinking of where somebody might be to get there I i'm petrified that i will th feel that way be like oh i just go <laughs> well i think that's like the most amazing thing like even right now that you're saying is the fact that you're even thinking about this you're taking into consideration your child's feeling mm -hmm. like, you know, and, and your life is important. Like, that's what it is. It's like, I think my mom felt like she had failed and it was done for her mm -hmm. and I was doomed. So it was a desperate, hopeless situation. The piece that's not even being recognized is like the grief that you two both were going through. Yes, exactly. Because that doesn't go away. In addition to us having to do these brainwashing seminars, they made the parents do them too. Really? So imagine having a grown man getting in your face and telling you the same things that were, I had just said were told to me, but they would do it to you, but they wouldn't be as hard because you were paying them. That manipulation of maybe making the parents feel like they had created this problem. 100%. Yep. And that, that it's their fault that their kid is the way that they are and just like preying on people's insecurities 100 percent. i know they did that to people i know they said it's your fault your family's broken your kids a, you know some low life scumbag not amount to anything how does that make you feel as a parent like you know what did your parents do to you know make you like that so it's just it's like the damage that's done there's like so many layers and generations and like yeah. people connected it's like my friends were affected I was affected. My family was affected. Everybody was just destroyed by this. And some families have not bounced back. I would say a lot of survivors to this day do not speak to their parents at all. They don't speak. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I can see that too. I was going to ask if either of the schools that you went to are still operating. No, they're not. But what these places do, I could even send you like kind of like a diagram. So like Paris, Sidhu, Sinanon was the first one that started. That was the cult, Sinanon, which kind of trickled down and created all of these. Though mine are not. The Ivy Ridge one was shut down by the New York State Attorney General. That one in Iowa, the director obviously was brought to court for what he did to the students. And so those were shut down. But what these programs do for centuries, I'm sorry, not centuries, decades, what they do is they will kind of start getting investigated, they'll disband, and then they'll come together again under a new name. Okay. So that's what they've done since the 50s or 60s. Wow. What would you hope that people would take away from hearing your story? I've said this to people when they're kind of like, not sure, like, should I do a movie? Should, should I write a book? Like, should I tell people? I think the biggest 
and I have refrained from like swearing the whole time, but I think the biggest F you to these places, like literally is if you can take what they did to you and make something out of it that works for your life now, that's the biggest like F you to these people. Because like, if you can like make a movie from this or a documentary or photography, because you're seeing the world completely different through a different lens write a book, collaborate in a project, or maybe you find that you are getting closer with these survivors. And now you have a support group who understands your pain and the complexity of that. If you can do anything like that proves these people wrong, your life meant something, you're not worthless. It's not your fault that these things happen to you. When you can eventually like create something from your pain and put that out into the world, whether it's like a podcast, like the trapped and treatment you were saying, or all these podcasts that are coming out and like stories and art pieces. If you're going to make something from that, that you win. And also another part of that too, is you just automatically win in life because I think we are talking like avoidance of pain. If you can really dig into like the trauma from these schools and face it, and come together with other people and help them heal and get these places shut down so that no child ever has to go through this again, you just win. Because there's so many people who go through life just not wanting to feel any pain. They're just living and they just do what they think they need to do. You know, they get married, they have a kid, they have a job, you know, they live, they die. You know, it's like when you really can like dig into that stuff that happened to you and make some, whether it's art or connection from it, you win because it's not easy to do that. It's not, it's so much easier to numb it and just move on and be a robot. I mean, that's why a lot of people did like a lot of students to come to the brainwashing in these schools because it was, that was your way out. And you know, you dulled your senses and kind of like pushed through, but like when you can take that back and reclaim it and live again, like, and do what you want to do and say what you want to say, what's holding you back. And I always say that to any survivor I've talked to who's still really struggling because I always acknowledge how you feel I acknowledge what you went through now that we've acknowledged this what's stopping you from doing anything going anywhere being anything you want to be nothing nothing is in your way so when I I celebrate the wins of survivors when they do do that because that is how you conquer these demons and you come out on top Whereas, like I said, these staff members who did all this stuff, they don't care. I know for, I interviewed the staff members who did this to me. Right. And they just spewed lies to my face. They're like, well, you were kind of like troublesome and defiant and sassy. And, you know, I was just trying to help you. It's just lies. You know, like they're just living in this la la land. Whereas we're dealing with our pain. We're living in reality and we're trying to connect and help others. That's a life well lived. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I hope we didn't talk too much. <laughs> no, you're oh great. Gosh. It's a um, podcast. You're supposed to talk. You're supposed to talk. And we will we'll link to you in our show notes. And you mentioned some projects you have coming out later this year. Yeah. So we'll we'll post info for those too. And yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Now What Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. You can find us on social media at the Now What Pod. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your story matters and you do too.